I invite you this morning to turn to Luke chapter 11. And our text this morning will be Luke chapter 11, verse 29. Beginning in verse 29, Luke chapter 11. You'll find that on page 870 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And uh, I trust God will bless us through His Word this morning as He has already blessed us through seeing His work in baptism. What a great and wonderful encouragement it is to see people follow our Lord and Savior. May He even do a work in our hearts this morning as we consider His Word. Luke chapter 11, verse 29. Hear now the Word of God. When the crowds were increasing, He began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the words of Christ this morning. We're thankful for the challenge that they are to us, the encouragement that they bring us. We're thankful for the wisdom in them. And we pray that we would come this morning and hear them as the very words of the Son of God has come to teach us, come to show us, come to save us. Will you do a work in our hearts this morning as we hear His words? Will the Holy Spirit please come? Will you send Him that He might enliven our hearts to rejoice in the Word and it might change us more into the image of Christ, we pray in His name. Amen. In 1979, the academic world was stunned as one of the world's most famous atheists, Antony Flew, confessed he has now rejected atheism and has placed faith in God. This 50 years, for 50 years, this learned British philosopher, very accomplished academically, was not only an atheist, but he was also the world, one of the world's foremost critics of Christianity. And after five decades, he announced right before Christmas that he now believed there was enough evidence for the existence of God. He would say, I quote him, It seems to me that the case for a God who has the characteristics of power and also intelligence is now much stronger than it ever was before. Now to be clear... Flew never became a Christian. He became a theist. He 
believed that God existed, but he still rejected Jesus. He rejected the gospel. I think people like this have always existed. People who say they believe in God, but keep Jesus at arm's length. Talk about God all you want, but Jesus is another story. Maybe others still even deciding about Jesus. And we see some of these groups here following Jesus in Luke 11. We, we see those who follow Him because they love Him and they believe in Him. And others are, are around Him because they think He's evil. They reject His claims and say that He's actually empowered by the devil himself. And still there is this third group who, who want more evidence. Right? They, they see Jesus perform the miracles, saw his, heard His teaching, but they still want more. All three of these groups are around Jesus here in Luke 11. If you look back in verse 14, the passage we considered last time, it says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. There's one group, those who are just amazed at what he can do. But there's a second group, verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And yet a third group, verse 16. While others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And we saw last time in our study of Luke's Gospel that he addresses the group that considers Jesus to be evil, that considers him to be empowered by the devil. And he addressed them sternly, but graciously. He reasoned with them, and he even warned them. Today, Jesus addresses that third group that we might call skeptics. Those who say, give us more evidence. Give us a sign. This sermon that Jesus gives beginning in verse 29 is given to those who are staring right at Jesus and yet still could not see Him. People keep asking for more and more evidence. A, a heavenly sign when the Son of God was standing right in front of them. And my prayer for some of you today as I think Jesus' prayer for those He was addressing, is that you would see the glory of King Jesus. Maybe for the first time. That you would be won by Him, like our sisters Catherine and Lily, and, and run to Him. That you would stop your unbelief and stop your demands for more and more and more evidence and surrender to Him. For others, perhaps those who have given our lives to Him, maybe God would work in your heart today that He would stop our wandering ways, that He would correct our lukewarm affection, that we might see Him as the glorious treasure He is. So let's consider Jesus' address to these skeptics. He begins by explaining the reasons for unbelief. Why is it that these people continue in their unbelief? He begins to address them in verse 29. It says, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, I find that, that passage very interesting. He, he has his crowd around them, and he looks at them, and he says to them all, right, you all, you see it, are an evil generation. In fact, you notice when he says that? You see what Luke tells us, the, the, what prompted that? When the crowds were, what is it? Increasing, right? When the church is growing. And the ministry is abounding. He says, you all, and you know something, you're all evil. Which I find, maybe it's because I'm a pastor, but I find that utterly fascinating. Right? Because when pastors get together, we go to our pastor's conferences or have our pastor's meetings, it's not long before the question comes up, how big is your church? Is your church growing? You know, what's going on? 
And then we have this special speaker who will come and stand and preach to pastors. And he's always introduced. I was driving me crazy at seminary. He's always introduced. And Pastor Frank over here, he has a church of 5,000 members or 8,000 members. Or his church has gone from this to this. And, and all of his, his uh, accreditations are laid before us. And so he has a large church. So certainly he must be worthy of addressing us. It almost seems to me at times, I think we're like a bunch of Davids taking our census keeping our numbers very carefully. Now, now to be clear, I'm happy when the church grows. Right? Uh, praise God that we've been growing now for, for at least three years in a row. Praise God for that. But let me just suggest to you that a large church or even church growth, though often a good sign, may not necessarily be a good sign. It may be that the truth is not being proclaimed. In fact, I, I receive emails like this all the time. Almost on a daily basis. Emails, magazines, how to grow your church. I got one this week. It's from truelife.org. I know nothing about that organization. But here's the, the subject line. Doubling or tripling your, capital Y-O-U-R, church size in one year. That's extraordinary. You could triple the ch- church size in one year. Let's see. Webinar, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, I didn't click on the email. I just deleted it. I did not log into the webinar. But I'm guessing if you would have gone to the webinar, they would not have quoted Luke 11.29. They would not say, this is how you do it. When it gets going and things are increasing, you say, you all are an evil generation. But evidently, Jesus didn't log into these webinars as well. I appreciate what one pastor says. Jesus Christ is no seller of snake oil or purveyor of positive thinking nonsense. He told them the truth, even if they didn't want to hear it. We see that in our Lord here. You're an evil generation. Why? Because you are seeking a sign. Now, that's somewhat startling, right? I mean, what's wrong with seeking a sign? They're showing interest in Christ, aren't they? They... they they're, they're pursuing him in some degree, right? Shouldn't he encourage that interest rather than calling him names, them names? But he doesn't. In, instead, he, he doesn't seem to see, see it this way. He says to them, you look, you're seeking for a sign. No sign is going to be given to you. And the reason why no sign would be given to them is that it would not solve their problem. Right? I mean, how many signs do they need? He's doing signs every day. He just gave... Speaks to a man who's been rendered mute for perhaps years, plus the thousands of healings, raising the dead, feeding the 5,000. Beyond that, it is a perfect life being lived out in front of them with no sin or evil in it. His amazing teaching, his unparalleled insight and wisdom into the Word of God and to the world in which we live. And never mind the fact that God is standing right in front of them, speaking audibly to them, their Creator. That's a pretty good sign, right? God is there. It'd be like if I came home early from a, from a, a trip and, and I, I met my wife to surprise her and she said, you know, I can't wait for our call tonight. I'd be like, well, honey, we're not going to call tonight. I'm home. I'm here. The, the Creator had come. God would audibly speak to this. They would hear from heaven. God speak. That's my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. Listen to what he says. Follow his ways. You see, they don't, they don't need any more signs. There's enough. 
They need to believe the signs they have, the evidence they already have. They're evil not because they're seeking evidence for belief. They're evil because they keep demanding for more and more as a way to rationalize their unwillingness to believe all the evidence in front of them. I tell you, 10 million signs would not have been enough for them. They can't see them. He says, our Lord says they are blind. Look at verse 33. He says, no, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. I believe this to be a reference of Jesus. That Jesus is, is this light. And when you, when you light a lamp, you don't, you don't hide it. You, you put it up. You put it up so it might, might lighten up the house as much as possible. And Jesus has come as the lamp and he's not hiding. Right? He's not sneaking around and lurking in the shadows. He's not trying to make it hard. He is being as public as he possibly can. He's giving his light to as many people as he can. And all his works and his words were done before men and then faithfully recorded for you and I that we have had for now thousands of years. And in fact, to this day, even as our brother prayed, the, the, the gospel is being preached about Jesus Christ in this town and other church buildings and in the town next door and across the seas slide. Well, Jesus says, so that they, they may enter and see the light. See, people don't believe in Jesus quite often, not because he's making it hard for them, not because the lamp has been hidden, but because they don't want to believe. Jesus says, your, your eyes are bad. He changes metaphors in verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your light is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Sometimes we're confused with verse 34 because we we think of, you know, he says our eyes are lamp. We we think of flashlights or like a superhero with laser beams. In order to understand this, you need to turn the eyes around. Right? The eyes are the lamp of what? You see that? The body. The eyes shine in. You might think of them as windows, perhaps. They, they allow light from outside to come into our bodies, bringing light into us. Which, by the way, is exactly how eyes work. Evidently, Jesus knew this. No one else did. But they perceive the light around us so that our minds can understand it. They bring it into us. And so Jesus says it matters if your eyes are good or bad, right? If they're blind, it doesn't matter how much light there is. If you're blind, it doesn't matter how bright the lamp shines or how brilliant the sun is. It's just darkness on the inside. He's using this metaphor to explain why some people believe in him and others keep demanding for more and more. Your eyes are good. You emit the light of Christ, the revelation of Jesus, the evidence before us, and your life is illuminated. If your eyes are bad, you have the cataract of pride or the blindness of idolatry. You don't see Jesus as the Son of God. You see the cross as a failed revolutionary. You see the empty tomb despite all its historical evidence as simply a fable. When the eyes are bad, it's like a window, a a house with no windows. It's just full of darkness. And they come to Christ and they say, give us a sign. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter how many signs I give you. If you're blind, you cannot see them. And their blindness, by the way, is not physical. It, It is a moral determination to reject God. It is a voluntary blindness because it is self-serving. They, they claim that if there's more evidence, then will you believe simply as a way so they can continue to live as their own God. Simply as a way to justify living for their own 
pleasures and joys. In fact, in John chapter 3, the Bible says, The light came into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. They won't believe it. Their eyes are bad. Now at this point, I, I want to make sure that we differentiate between honest doubt and skeptical, dishonest unbelief. Right? Doubt, doubt says I'm having trouble believing. There's nothing wrong with doubt. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with, if you will, asking for evidence if it's an honest inquiry. Unbelief says, I will not believe, right? So doubt asks for evidence. Unbelief conquers evidence. Unbelief swallows evidence and says, I'm still hungry. Give me more. It's dishonest. It's, it's as Jesus says, it's evil. In fact, Henry Drummond, a pastor of the 19th century, preached a sermon titled, Dealing with Doubt, in 1887. He said, Jesus never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief loves darkness. Loving darkness rather than the light. That is what Christ attacked. But for the doubting questions of Thomas, Philip, Nicodemus, and many others who came to him to have their great problems solved, he was generous in his teaching them the truth. When Thomas came to him, having denied the resurrection and stood before him, expecting scathing words for his doubt... They never came. Instead, Jesus Christ showed him the facts. He gave him a sign. See, Jesus never says, hey, you just have to believe. Shove your questions aside. Just believe. I pray we would never say that to someone. Stop asking questions and just believe. I love questions. It shows, if they're honest, it shows you're, you're seeking. Right? But, but Jesus here is dealing with people that don't want the truth. They're blind to it. They doubt. They will not believe despite the evidence. They're like Herod. Remember him when Jesus was in in front of Herod and and Herod got all excited with him and and wanted Jesus to perform some trick to prove he was who he said he was. As the modern uh, American musical says, uh, puts the words in Herod's mouth. So you are the Christ. You're the great Jesus Christ. Prove to me you're divine. Change my water into wine. So if you are the Christ, yes, the great Jesus Christ, prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. If he did it, you think Herod would have got down from his throne and kissed the feet of his new king? No. He's doing exactly what these people are doing. He's doing exactly what millions of people have done throughout the thousands of years. They're saying, prove to us you're no fool. Perform our trick. Write my name in the sky. Appear to me in a dream. Whatever it might be. And Jesus says, the very fact that you keep asking for more and more and more just shows your eyes are bad. You're dishonest, even with yourself. I think of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story that Jesus told? The beggar Lazarus and the rich man, they both died. And Lazarus went to the side of Abraham and the rich man down into a place of torment. And, and in this story, Jesus says the rich man could see Lazarus at Abraham's side. And, and he says to, to Abraham, he says, um, will you send Lazarus back to warn my brothers right, of this truth, of this place of torment? And, and Abraham said, they have Moses 
Let them listen to Moses. I'm referring to the scripture, right? Moses, the author of scripture. And, and the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, Moses is not enough. But if you send Lazarus back from the dead, they'll listen to Lazarus. And Father Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses, they will not listen even if someone rises from the dead. You see, the problem is not the lack of evidence. The problem is with the heart. Even if one rises from the dead, they still will not believe. Of course, it happened. Someone did rise from the dead. His name is Jesus. He did it bodily, historically, factually, physically, publicly. And still people say, it's not enough. Give us more. Well, no more will be given. You, my friends, don't need any more. None of us do. Jesus says, I've given enough. I've put the light on the table. The Son of God has come. The problem is that people have chosen to be blind. They fail to see Jesus, not because He's hiding but because their hearts are too hard. They love the darkness. So what they do is shift the blame and they blame Jesus for their unbelief rather than their own heart. May God help you if you find yourself in this position. You who are asking for more and more and more. It might just be that no matter how much He gives you, you still will not believe unless you repent of your hardness of heart to Him. More signs won't be given. They won't help. But you notice He will give them Just one more. Enough to believe. He says in verse 29. You see that there? No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Consider with me secondly the evidence for belief. Why is it that we should believe? Verse 29 says, I'm going to give one more sign. It will be the sign of Jonah. Verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. That's interesting, right? Because Jonah performed no signs at all. I mean, there's no miraculous activity with Jonah. He simply just showed up in Nineveh and preached. Which, of course, was the sign, right? That he was alive and able to preach. You know, Jonah, of course, wanted no part with God's call to Nineveh and set sail the other way. And God pursued him with a storm. And the sailors, out of a desire to save their own lives, cast Jonah into the sea, which, of course, would have been the end of Jonah. But God sent that great fish to swallow Jonah. And for three days, he lived in the belly of that fish as that uh, that fish swam towards Nineveh. And in that belly, Jonah repented, saying, From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And once he repented, he exploded into the, onto the beach. And off to Nineveh he went and preached. That's the sign. Right? That Jonah, as good as dead, is alive and preaching. In fact, Jesus, in verse 30, says, Jonah became a sign. He himself was the sign. He who should have been dead is alive and doing ministry. Of course, this is a reference to Jesus' resurrection. That Jesus, who would be killed publicly in front of all, as good as dead, buried, and rose again to proclaim truth. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the sign He gives to you if you need one. He died and rose again. He who lived, died, and publicly and historically rose from the grave. And I would suggest to you that that historical evidence of Jesus' resurrection is undeniable. Of course, there is the empty tomb that was proclaimed. If you opposed Jesus, as many did, all you had to do was produce a body. 
Here's the grave. Here's the body. He's not alive. Of course, they were not able to do that. Secondly, you have the eyewitness testimony of hundreds of people spreading all over the Roman Empire saying, we have seen Jesus risen again. We have spent time with him. We have touched his hands. We have eaten food with him. And then thirdly, you have their sacrificial lives. You might say, well, they all got together and lied. Well, that could be an option if they receive some gain from lying. You only lie if it's going to do you some good for you. But because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they lost their wealth, they lost their livelihood, they lost their friends, they lost their religious positions, they lost their, uh, their, their lives even. The most of them died for this claim. And the saying goes, liars make bad martyrs. If you made it up, you're going to confess at least one of them. And yet every one of them went to, almost everyone went to horrible and terrible deaths. There is no plausible alternative historical explanation other than that these men saw Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Even the critic of Christianity, Anthony Flew, admits, quote, The evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It is outstandingly different in quality and quantity from the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. If you want to learn more about the historical reliability of the resurrection account, you could do perhaps no better than Josh McDowell's The Evidence That Demands a Verdict or Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel, an atheistic Chicago beat reporter, set out to disprove Christianity. And when he investigated the historical facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he had no other choice but to bow his knee to his new king and now pastors in Chicago. The evidence is sufficient. It's more than sufficient. In fact, consider who believed with far less. Verse 31 says, The queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. Our brother Tom read to us the account of the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, as Jesus refers to her in her hunger for wisdom, travels to test Solomon. You read about in 1 Kings, another account, and she asks him questions about biology and botany. She asks him about astronomy and mathematics and of course, theology. And the Bible says there was no question that Solomon could not answer. And she was overwhelmed by all that he knew. And she placed her faith. She believed that indeed Solomon was an agent from God himself. And you think about Jesus says she came from the end of the earth to do this. Both these groups are seeking truth. right? Give us a sign. Queen of Sheba seeking truth. But she went to great trouble at great cost and at great distance to find it. Verse 31 says she came from the ends of the earth. At least in their mindset, most likely she traveled from Yemen, 1,200 miles, months by caravan. Right? These people didn't travel anywhere. Jesus just came to them. And I'll tell you, Jesus is far greater than Solomon. I mean, talk about an understatement. Solomon described plants. Jesus created them. Solomon's kingdom was of immense wealth, right? Jesus has an eternal wealth beyond any description All the world's wealth is his anyways. Solomon's wisdom penetrated deep mystery, no doubt. And we're going to study the book of Proverbs this summer, I hope, God willing. And Solomon wrote over a thousand Proverbs to help us understand life. Jesus, however, is omniscient. And according to Colossians 2, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Solomon's kingdom, it shrank little by little until its glory vanished and all his great works were gone. Jesus' kingdom, 2,000 years later, grows and grows until it will reach every people and language and tribe and nation of the increase of his government. You know what it is? There is no end. Solomon worked his people close to death to build his kingdom. Jesus experienced his own death to build his. Solomon became an idolater, an adulterer. Jesus died for Solomon's sins. You see, they're in presence of one far greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, wisdom incarnate. This woman traveled far and great cost to much less, and she believed Christ came to them unfolding wisdom and showing power at no cost, and they demanded more. Give us more. Give us more. And Jesus says in verse 31, the result will be at the judgment the Queen of Sheba will rise as their accuser. Who rise to condemn this generation. I wonder... Will she have anything to say about you who have heard even this morning the truth of Christ? We have been given the opportunity to believe you have it right now. What will she say on that day? And my Christian brothers and sisters, what is it that you doubt? What is it that you don't believe? Some of you perhaps struggle. Am I really forgiven? Some of you wrestle with, will God really take care of me in this future that is totally uncertain and difficult? Some of you doubt whether obedience truly brings joy in your life. And Christ has given you enough reasons to believe. Will you bow your knee in faith to Him? The Queen of Sheba will accuse this generation. By the way, she's not the only accuser. She will be joined by all of Nineveh. Verse 32 The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jesus is not only interested in Jonah's journey in a fish, but Nineveh's response. In verse 32, he says, they repented. Now, how does Jesus compare to Jonah? Well, consider their motivation. Jonah Jonah hated the Ninevites and went simply because God made him. And God would have killed him if he didn't. Jesus came willingly out of love. Think about their message. Jonah preached an eight-word sermon that had no mention of grace, no mention of God's love or compassion, simply 40 days and God will destroy this city. Jesus, the Bible says God didn't send His Son in the world to condemn His world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Or just consider the messenger. Jonah hoped Nineveh would be destroyed. Jesus wept outside Jerusalem and pleaded for their salvation. Jonah was brought from the depths of darkness for for three days because of his own sin. Jesus went into the darkness of death for three days because of our sin. Jonah came simply to save his own life. Jesus came to give up his life. Jonah was more upset about the death of a shade plant than the destruction of thousands. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross for millions. Yeah, so yeah, so I would say so. Something greater than Jonah is here. And yet, the Ninevites repented. They repented after a terrible message from a bigoted and disobedient prophet who hated them. 
And here is one infinitely greater in every way. And they refuse him. Right? And others continue to refuse him. And he says they will rise up in that day of judgment and condemn those who continue to reject Christ. I wonder, will the men of Nineveh have anything to say about you on the day of judgment? My friends, you, there's no excuse. You don't, most likely, you don't need more evidence. You don't need another sign. Because you're not refusing him because there's not enough evidence. You just don't want to believe. And all your questions are just a smoke stream. Because you don't want to surrender to him. And I tell you with great compassion in my heart, and not because it's my own thoughts, but because it is recorded over and over again in the Word of God, which has been passed down for millennia. Based upon the authority of God, I tell you this morning, if you continue to keep Christ at arm's length, if you continue to demand more and more before you will place your faith in Him, one day you will stand before a holy God and He will judge you for your rejection of Him. And others will stand up and condemn you. And you will be cast into a place of torment for all eternity. And my hope is that even God will bring you to Him right now, that you will listen to Christ's gracious warning. And for us Christians here, you have been given faith to believe the evidence. Can you rejoice in that? Well, that does not fill your heart with praise today. I believe by God's grace. Will that not just be a great encouragement to you? No matter what else is going on in your life, what could be more important? That you are united to God through Christ and shall be forevermore. Jesus goes on and says, after explaining that there's enough evidence, He explains to us what is the consequence of actually believing Him. Consider again back in verse 34 as we, we think about the consequence of belief. Quickly, point number three. We've, we looked at what it means if your eyes are bad, but what about if your eyes are good? He says in verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. You see what happens when your eyes are good? When your eyes are healthy, it's like you're illuminated. And some of you understand this. God gives you direction, doesn't He? He gives you purpose. He puts joy in your heart. It's like everything is lit up and, and brilliant. Christ says, if your eyes are good, you could see me. And that changes everything about you. By the way, you see how central Jesus is to this. Right? If you're, if you're wrong about Jesus, He says, it doesn't matter what else you're right about. Your life is dark. Right? It's dark. It's just darkness. With, with all, apologies to Oprah and Dr. Phil's and all the rest, there is no inner light. Right? I let my inner light shine. But Jesus says, there is, it's nothing in there. It's, it's dead. That's why I've come. I've come to bring you light. Unless you can see it, your life will be full of darkness. But if you're right about Christ, everything changes. Everything. Every, every aspect of your life he is our light. Life, it will be full of light. When we gaze upon Christ, we let Him shine into our lives. And many of you have experienced that. And you've experienced that purpose and direction and joy in which you lay hold of Christ with the eyes of faith. And your life is radically transformed. And yet sometimes we move along, don't we? And we, you know, the, the eyes grow dim. And the light grows dim in our life. I appreciate it so much... My sister Catherine's testimony, she's, she's a blaze for Christ right now. 
She's letting Christ flood her life with light and it is changing her. But so many Christians, they, they say, I believe in Christ and they follow Christ and yet their life is, well, it's shrouded with darkness. I think this is perhaps what Jesus is referring to in verse 35. When he says, therefore, look, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. He says, be careful to let the light in. And what happens is you begin to let the light out. You begin to become the light. You begin to share the light of Christ. And all depends upon you being careful to let the light come in you. So what, what, what are you bringing into your life? Right? What, be careful, he says. What are, you, what are you gazing upon with your eyes? What, what do you look at at school and at work? What do you look at on the computer and the television? He says, be careful to let the light in. We might want to think of it this way. Consider that your eyes are cameras, just constantly taking in reality. What, what are they bringing into you by what you watch and what you read? How does that affect you spiritually as these memories loop in your mind? In fact, not only what are you looking at, what are you letting in, but what, what are you showing to other people? What do they see in you? Are you a, an emissary of Christ, one who brings light? Parents, what, what do your children see in you? What do you display for them? What do they hear you... How do they, how do they hear you speak to one another? How do they hear you speak about other people? Right? Are you making it easier for them to believe the gospel? Or harder? Are you shining the light of Christ into them? He says there, verse 35, Be careful what you take in. My friends, do you think opening God's Word and spending time in it might be important? you think coming and hearing God's Word proclaimed to you week in and week out might be important? you think... Bible study and Sunday school and community group and women's ministry and men's ministry. You think truth might be important? You think getting alone with God every day and opening His Word might be important? You think it might be important to set the lamp right in front of you every day and just let it shine its light into you? I tell you, the Queen of Sheba would have delighted beyond measure at the privilege you have every day. For we have a message not from a reluctant prophet fresh from the belly of a whale. But we have a message from the Son of God who burst out of His tomb. Will you let that light shine? I'll tell you, change your life. It will change your life. I love the story of the Christians who were imprisoned during the French Revolution. And they were crammed into a dungeon, a dark, damp place. But once a day, for a few moments, as the sun stood at a particular angle, the the light of the sun would would come into their, their dungeon. And one of the prisoners who had a Bible would be hoisted up and sit upon the, the shoulders of fellow prisoners. And he would hold up his Bible in that sun-lit crack. And he would read as fast as he could while the sun was there. And when he was done, they would let him down and they would ask him, tell us what you read while you were in the light. The Word of God is our light. Christ wants to shine brilliantly before you. Let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly as you teach and admonish one another with gratitude in your hearts to God. Colossians 3.16 The Word of Christ. I tell you, Jesus is the light of the world. He is the greatest joy. He is our highest priority and privilege. May His truth penetrate our lives. May it let light into our lives. And for my my friends here that perhaps have come 
and who are not a Christian, perhaps there is one or two of you here this morning. You notice Jesus when He says, verse 35, be careful lest the light become in, uh, light uh, in you be darkness. You see what He's doing is He's putting the responsibility back upon you. He's taking it off Himself to give you more evidence. And He says to you, you be careful. You be careful to get out of darkness. You get out of darkness by receiving Christ. Even as our sisters confess today through baptism and testimony that Jesus Christ has come to this world and lived a perfect life without sin, completely fulfilling the law of God. And, and yet they killed Him. But that was God's plan. Things didn't get out of hand. It was the plan from, the, from eternity past that Christ would come and He would die upon the cross. And as He died, He would bear the wrath of God upon Himself. He would take our place our substitute, and, and, and be punished for our sins. And he proved that it would happened, that it was true, because three days later he rose from the dead and appeared to over 500 people. And now he offers everyone, everyone who is in rebellion, no matter who you are or what you've done, if you will simply lay down your arms of rebellion and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and King, you will be forgiven of your sins. You'll be covered in mercy and grace. My friends, I tell you, you cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot accumulate enough good deeds and righteousness to lay before God one day and say, let me in because I am a good person. He will call you as Christ did here. You are evil. You lived in rebellion to me and I sent my Son into this world that you might worship Him and know Him and receive Him and you kept pushing Him away and He will send you into a Christless eternity. You must receive Christ. You must receive His pardon. I close with a curious story of George Wilson. It was a Supreme Court case in 1833. Some of you have perhaps have heard of George Wilson, a notorious bank robber, train robber, postal service robber. Eventually he was caught, tried, condemned to life in prison. Well, for one reason or another, we're not sure, President Jackson extended George Wilson a full and complete pardon. And yet Wilson refused it. We don't know why. Maybe he felt guilty. Maybe he liked prison. But he said, no, I refuse that pardon. So the warden was in a bind. He said, I can't keep you here. You've been pardoned. Uh, he said, I'm not leaving. So went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. In 1833, the Supreme Court ruled, I quote, our highest court in our land. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to force it upon him. So Wilson spent the remainder of his days in prison. Because a pardon is not valid unless one receives it. Exactly what millions are doing even today. Churches all around this world. Pardon is being offered. Nail-pierced hands are extending full and complete pardons for all eternity. And they say, no, thank you. Walk away. May that not be you. May even now you pray in your heart, God, give me mercy. I believe. I bow my knee to King Jesus. 
The Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, your King, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be, what is it, church? Saved. You'll be saved right now, my friend. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for Your Word and the encouragement that it is to us. We're thankful for the work of Christ, that He has come into this world, not hiding, but showing who He is and what He has done, and ultimately giving us the greatest evidence for faith, His resurrection from the dead. And we thank You this morning that You, by Your kindness to us, have placed faith in our hearts, that we might believe in You. May that be enough for us today that we would delight and rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ, that we are, have a eternity is secured, and no matter how hard this life is, how difficult, how uncertain, this is as close to hell as we will ever get. It only gets better because of Christ. Is there not joy in that, Father? Is there not stability in that? Is there not strength in that? The joy of the Lord is our strength. May not fill us with delight in Your work. And Father, we pray for our friend here today. We not begin to stir in their hearts. We not begin to cause them to question their unbelief. Maybe they begin to ask, why don't I believe? And maybe they would begin to do an honest inquiry. Okay, God, if it's true, I want to believe if it's true. And out of honesty, they would ask for evidence not as a way to justify their continued unbelief. Work in their hearts. Perhaps even, Father, you've already done that. And there may have been one or two here that is even in their hearts right now calling out to their God for mercy. Father, we, we rejoice that if it is so, you have saved them. We even help them to share that with a friend, a spouse, that we might walk with them. We thank you, Jesus, for your great words and the encouragement that they are to us. Help us to honor you as we live our lives in obedience of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.